In November 2006, a man named Abraham Shakespeare hit the jackpot in the Florida lotto. His good heart led him to give and loan away a large amount of his winnings in short order. When a woman named Dee Dee Moore convinced him to sign his assets over to her to protect them from vultures, things went from bad to worse. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Okay, no announcements or preludes or whatever. Let's jump right into it. This is part two, so I know you guys have been waiting for it. If you haven't listened to last week's episode yet, I definitely recommend you go do that, or this episode's going to be a little confusing. If you remember where we left off last week, Abraham Shakespeare, two years after winning the lottery, met a woman named Dee Dee Moore. Over the course of about four to six months, she had taken over all of his money and all of his property, convincing him that it was safer if it was out of his name. Then in April 2009, Abraham's family and friends, they just stopped hearing from him. Dee Dee told everyone Abraham was out of the state or he was out of the country, and she gave a variety of reasons. Sometimes she said it was for drug rehab. Sometimes it was AIDS treatment, which I'll note, it doesn't seem like anyone was under the impression Abraham even had AIDS. And sometimes she would just say he was on an extended cruise or he was staying out of town to avoid the police. I mean, she had a lot of reasons and a lot of places Abraham supposedly was. The truth is, Abraham had threatened to do something like this. He told people he was going to disappear one day, go somewhere where people couldn't bug him for money. So after Dee Dee paid Abraham's cousin Cedric to deliver a birthday card to Abraham's mother Elizabeth, Cedric got suspicious. He eventually went to the police in November 2009 to report Abraham missing. He found out no one else had heard from Abraham either. An investigation immediately started, but we're already talking seven months after Abraham disappeared. So the police, they're already seven months behind. But they knew where to start with the only person who claimed to have seen or talked to Abraham since April, Dee Dee Moore. Dee Dee talked to the police multiple times in the months after Abraham was reported missing. Multiple times. She was so eager to help. Eager enough that the police were actually a little suspect of how eager she was. She was calling them to offer help with the investigation. She was offering information that they never asked for. She told them about the initial plan, why she met Abraham, and that was to write a book about his life. But shortly after she met him, she realized that all these people in his life were taking advantage of him and taking advantage of his money. So she stepped in to help out with his finances. 
She claimed there was no financial gain on her part here. She just had a good heart and she wanted to help. Dee Dee said that all of the sales of Abraham's property to her were part of Abraham's plan to disappear. He was just so upset about how people treated him like their personal ATM that he just wanted to leave and disappear forever, live the rest of his life in peace. Dee Dee also told the police that Abraham could trust her because she didn't need or want his money. She was actually a millionaire herself when they met. And last week, we talked about a little thing called pathological lying, and that's what we're seeing right here. This claim of being a millionaire is easily checked. A quick look at her finances could confirm this as false. She didn't need to tell the police that she was a millionaire to sell this story. It was really just this added thing she threw in there. It was unnecessary but it's like she couldn't help herself. And investigators did subpoena her financial records along with Abraham's and her boyfriend, Char's. These records showed that what she was saying was false. She never paid Abraham anything. Even though she would claim money was going to Abraham, there was no proof money ever went to Abraham. It was just going from Abraham out to Dee Dee, or to her business account, or to her boyfriend, or to her lawyer. She had places it went, but all those places led back to her, even if a little indirectly. And what about this claim that she was a millionaire? Well, her business profits for the previous four years, so just her business profits, this is excluding Abraham's money, because yeah, that made her a millionaire, but let's take that out of the equation And we're at about $700,000 over four years. So that's like $175,000 a year. Now, I would not say no to that salary, but that doesn't mean she was a millionaire. She was not a millionaire when she met Abraham. When Dee Dee wasn't lying to police herself, she was also behind the scenes trying to get people to lie for her. Centoria, the mother of Abraham's youngest child, because if you remember, he has two little boys. Centoria went to police unprompted. They didn't ask her to come in. She told them that Dee Dee had come to her and offered to give her a car and a house if she would go to the police and tell them that she had recently seen Abraham. So as Dee Dee is watching this investigation ramp up into the disappearance of Abraham Shakespeare, she's trying to get people to say they knew Abraham was still alive. He wasn't dead. This wasn't a homicide. Several false tips about Abraham's whereabouts were later proven to come from people Dee Dee paid to call in the tip. Now, there were tips relayed to the police in earnest that weren't paid for, but when the police followed up on them and tracked them down, all of them led back to Dee Dee as the originator of the rumor. So she's back in this background as the investigators are moving through, and she is just stirring stuff up, trying to lead them away from the conclusion 
that Abraham was dead. And we never want police to get tunnel vision. We do not want them to hone in on a single suspect too early and just look at that person. I think it's a credit to the police that it actually appears like they did not get tunnel vision on Dee Dee, which must have been incredibly difficult because how could you not? She's paying people to lie and say Abraham's alive. She herself has repeatedly lied to the police. If she's not guilty, if she doesn't know what happened to Abraham, she's going out of her way to make it look like she does. But she did have one person confirm to police that Abraham was alive and well as recently as October 6th, so just a month before Abraham was reported missing. It was Howard Stitzel, Didi, and Abraham's attorney. Now, I think I said his last name 700 different ways in the last episode. I'll probably keep doing it. Anyway, the lawyer said he didn't see Abraham, but he did talk to him on the phone and he knew Abraham's voice. So he was 100% sure it was him. He couldn't tell police what they talked about, of course, because it was privileged communication between an attorney and a client, but he could say that Abraham was alive and he was fine. Investigators pushed back on this, assuming Didi had put him up to it, but he stuck to his story. Then the police, after they talk to the lawyer, they want to talk to Abraham's friend, Judy. And if you remember from last week, Abraham gave her power of attorney in April, and the meeting with the notary to sign that paperwork was one of the last times Abraham was seen alive. On November 13th, they met with her, and Judy said she had not seen Abraham since that notary signing. She said the purpose of the power of attorney was so that she could handle court things that came up in relation to Abraham's money, she could handle closing bank accounts, starting bank accounts. This would leave Abraham free to travel or to move away like he wanted, and Judy could just handle signing things. And there were bank accounts that were closed after Abraham went missing, and the cash from these accounts was taken and deposited right into an account DD controlled. Judy admitted to getting 20000 in checks made out to her, but she said that that money was before Abraham went missing, and she gave it to Abraham in cash, which is something Dee Dee told her to do. So I'm sure at this point, investigators were wondering if Judy was another person who was being scammed into this by Dee Dee, into helping defraud Abraham unknowingly, or if she was in cahoots with her. And at this point in the investigation, in my view, it was probably a toss-up, but eventually Judy was cleared. Police mentioned to Judy that Abraham's family also hadn't seen him since April, like Judy hadn't seen him since April, but that they had been receiving texts from him This information surprised Judy, and she told the police that Abraham couldn't have sent those texts 
due to his illiteracy. And I doubt investigators thought he sent those texts at any point in this investigation, but this was just more confirmation that these texts very likely were not from Abraham. So aside from the lawyer who claimed to have heard Abraham's voice on the phone in October, we're back to no contact since April. On November 25th, Dee Dee was confronted by investigators with the text messages. She was confronted by them pretty hard in a few interviews. And in this interview, she admitted that she did send these texts over the summer of 2009 on Abraham's behalf. In another interview a week later, she also added that Abraham had left his cell phone with her, so there was no point in using it to track his location. She said that he wanted her to send these texts to friends and family periodically, presumably so that they would know he was okay while he was in hiding and that they wouldn't get worried about him. It is odd that she had the cell phone since at least the summer, since Abraham supposedly used it to call the lawyer in October. So they asked Dee Dee straight out about this October 6th phone call and who had the phone and if Abraham called anyone. And Dee Dee then admitted that she asked the lawyer, Stitzel, however I'm saying his name today, she asked him to lie to the police about talking to Abraham. So as soon as she started getting wrapped up and caught in this lie, she just threw him right under the bus. He had tried to help her by sticking to their story. She was like, nope, moving on to the next lie. But she kept the story going that Abraham was alive out there somewhere, but just either getting treatment for drug addiction and illness, possibly just avoiding people who were hounding him for money. Again, she had all these stories, but they were just her being the good friend we know she was and covering for his whereabouts. She was, again, portraying herself as helping him. Every time Dee Dee got caught in a lie, she had another lie right behind it. It's like a backfill of lies. So she did provide a number of small confessions and concessions during these interviews, but she would always stop short of her harming Abraham. So the police did pursue the idea that Abraham left the country on his own. Now, Dee Dee's not helpful with this. She wouldn't give a location or any way to contact him. But they decided, let's look into this. Let's see if there's even a scrap of evidence of it. We are in post 9-11, so Abraham couldn't have sneezed near the airport without there being a record of it. They couldn't find him on any flights, commercial or private. They couldn't find any record of him buying a ticket. They couldn't find any record of him going on a cruise. Nothing. They couldn't find that Abraham left the country at all. What they did find, in Dee Dee's financials, she bought a Southwest flight for a young woman named Tyla Young. And Tyla was the daughter of a local police officer named Troy Young. And this turned out to be part of an alleged bribe. Dee Dee allegedly paid for the plane ticket and gave Troy 
$200 in exchange for him running some license plate numbers for her. She was worried that people in cars that were following her, she thought were following her or were watching her house, she thought they were undercover cops. So she was having Troy run the license plates to find out. So quick side note, Troy was arrested for bribery stemming from this, but I'm saying alleged bribery because it never went to trial. Dee Dee refused to testify against him, and she was the only witness. So the charges were dropped, but he was fired. So this police officer was a 20-year police veteran with a clean record. So heaven knows what was even going on here. He lost his job and presumably his pension for a plane ticket and $200. I mean, if he did do this, you have to wonder, was he on the down low a little bit shady this whole time? Or does Didi really have some weird ability to manipulate pretty much anyone in her path? Around the same time they're looking into financials and travel records, Abraham's lifelong friend Judy told the police that Abraham had come to her in March, so a month before he was last seen, and he had concerns about Didi and his money. He wasn't sure he should or could really trust Didi at this point. With this timeline of Abraham expressing concern about Didi in March, signing a power of attorney in early April, and then disappearing at some point after that, a theory of the crime starts coming into focus. Abraham likely confronted Didi and maybe even tried to get her to start signing things back over to him, or maybe just showing him proof that his assets were secure. Didi and or other people profiting from Abraham killed him as part of a cover-up for having stolen his money. Investigators at this point do not know if Didi acted alone. She was their prime suspect, but she wasn't the only one profiting. Her boyfriend, Char, had gotten money and cars in his name. The lawyer had been getting money from these accounts, though he did say his were from actual payment for legal services. And he didn't get necessarily an exorbitant amount. So this does track. But again, there's the boyfriend who was getting things. So they were not entirely sure that Dee Dee acted alone, but they did believe she was at the center of whatever this web was. There is room for this to be a violent confrontation that went too far, but there also seems to be room for premeditation here. Abraham's concerns were voiced in March, but Dee Dee couldn't get rid of him then because she needed his signature on all of these deals. If she gets power of attorney in her name, everything will trace back to her. Plus, Abraham has some doubts about her, so he might not be willing to give it to her. But he trusts Judy. 
So once he gives power of attorney to Judy, Dee Dee doesn't need him anymore. She just needs Judy. So there is room here for premeditation. All of this is coming together when on December 27th, Dee Dee took Abraham's mother, Elizabeth, out to dinner at the Cracker Barrel. And this seems out of the blue, but in the time Abraham was missing, but before his family reported it, Dee Dee actually took Elizabeth out to places periodically. They even went to a religious theme park together, if you can believe that. While at dinner, Elizabeth's phone rang. When she answered it, it was Abraham. This could be the shocking twist that turns the case on its head. But Elizabeth knew right away this was nonsense. The first word this man spoke, he was not Abraham. This was not her son's voice. She stayed on the call for eight minutes. She absolutely knew it wasn't him. And while she's on the call with him, he's saying things like, oh, I can't really hear you very well. Oh, the connection's not that great. She got off the phone. Elizabeth finished dinner with Dee Dee. She got herself home safely. And then she went to the police and told them about the phone call. And this ended up being the big break they needed. They traced the phone number back to a man named Greg Smith, because apparently no one has heard of burner phones. Greg was actually Abraham's friend. He owned a barbershop, and he used to have Abraham do small jobs around the shop for him, cleaning up, fixing small things, just one of those odds and ends jobs that Abraham worked before he won the lotto. Now, after winning the lottery, Abraham helped Greg out. He gave him a $63,000 loan to buy a house. Dee Dee and Greg met after she took over Abraham's finances. If you remember, she became the debt collector on all these loans and mortgages Abraham had given out. And so they met when Dee Dee would go knocking on his door to collect. So the investigators pinged the cell phone the next day, and he was at a strip mall. So they drove out there, and they were staking it out. While they were watching for Greg, into the parking lot pulls Dee Dee, and the investigators could not believe it. They watched as Dee Dee handed Greg a wad of cash right as the police are watching There could not have been a better time for them to have been in that parking lot. They didn't know how deep into this Greg was. What was his role? So they waited for Dee Dee to leave before they followed Greg out of the parking lot and they stopped him. The police told him, look, you got a choice to make. They were there investigating a murder. He could either help them or get wrapped up with an accessory charge. So Greg made a choice real fast, and he sang like a canary pretty much right away. He said Dee Dee had called him at work. She was crying about the investigation and how they thought she had done something, and she asked him to make the phone call to Abraham's mother. And the call was made purposely 
while Dee Dee had her out at a restaurant. That was by design. She hoped the background noise in the restaurant would make it hard for Elizabeth to notice that this wasn't her son's voice. Greg said Dee Dee actually had to make multiple calls. Another one was one of those anonymous tips to the sheriff's office. There was a tip that came in saying that Abraham was recently seen in Miami. That was Greg. When Dee Dee asked for Greg's help in this deception, she threatened to foreclose on his house if he didn't help, and if he did help, she would pay him several hundred dollars. So now Greg has said he initially believed Dee Dee was up to something, but not that Abraham was murdered. But when confronted with the police saying that this was a homicide investigation, any plausible deniability he was allowing for himself melted away. And he agreed to help the police. He said Abraham was a good man and a good friend, and he needed to do the right thing for him. So with a police wire, Greg continued to meet with Dee Dee over the next few weeks. On tape now, Dee Dee asked Greg to do other things that would make it look like Abraham was alive and well somewhere. One task was to deliver a letter from Abraham to Abraham's mother. And it was a typed letter. And in it, Abraham told his mother, air quotes Abraham, told his mother that he was okay, but was staying away to avoid an arrest. The letter went as far as to refer back to the fake December 27th phone call over dinner and ask how his own mother couldn't recognize his voice. Can you even believe that? It wasn't Abraham on the call. So, of course, Elizabeth didn't recognize his voice. But here in this letter, Dee Dee is trying to lay some guilt trip about a mother who can't recognize her son's voice. And so I've always noticed it's kind of odd sometimes what parts of cases hit us more strongly than others. And for some reason, this particular thing really got under my skin. Dee Dee, of course, typed this letter and she took forensic countermeasures. She wore gloves, a surgical mask, a shower cap, all to keep her DNA off the letter. She went to a hotel room. She used a new printer. Everything she could to keep that letter from tracking back to her. Now, mind you, the police are listening to all of this. So with these conversations with Greg, it eventually comes up this idea to have someone falsely confess to Abraham's murder in exchange for a payment. She wanted Greg to find someone who was already facing a long jail sentence who would want the money in exchange for just confessing. Now, this is a ridiculous idea, and it sounds ridiculous to pretty much everyone. 
no amount of money is worth a life sentence or, this is Florida, the death penalty. But Dee Dee, I don't know, somehow she thought this is how it was going to go. This would finally get police off her back because they would have their conviction. For investigators listening in, this was it. They could stop leaning on Greg and the wire so much and send in an undercover cop. They could now take control of what was going on. On January 21st, 2010, two and a half months into the investigation, Dee Dee met with Greg's quote-unquote cousin to discuss him taking the rap. This cousin, also known as Officer Mike Smith, said he was already facing, I don't know, 20 years in prison. It was for something else. He had nothing to lose, really, by claiming he killed Abraham since he was going to prison either way. But he did have something to gain, and he wanted money. So Didi agreed to pay him $50,000 in exchange for his false confession. Smith told Didi that he needed some details to really sell this thing. Police do try to corroborate confessions. You can't just say, I killed someone and it's over. He needed to be able to give something to the investigators. And so he said, Didi, if you can show me where the body is, I will lead police to it. And that would seal things. So Didi said, sure. She would tell him where the body was and give him the murder weapon. Give him the gun used to kill Abraham. Police have absolutely no actual evidence Abraham is dead. So they do not know that he was shot. And now here's Didi handing them a gun saying Abraham was shot. So she's going to lead him to the body, but part of the deal is Mike has to move the body first and then lead the police to the new burial location. She didn't want Abraham to be found where he was currently buried. And the gun, that was just a little extra piece in case police had any more doubts. Later on, Dee Dee called Greg and told him this story that's going to come up. I don't know, whenever Dee Dee needs a rabbit out of her hat, this random drug dealer named Ronald. In some stories, he's a white drug dealer. In some stories, he's a black drug dealer. But his name is always Ronald. Dee Dee told Greg that Ronald is the person who murdered Abraham. She talked to him on the phone and he told her where the body was. She wanted to meet with Greg to show him, and Greg agreed. Four days later, on January 25th, 2010, Greg met with Dee Dee. She gave him a 38 Smith & Wesson, saying it was the murder weapon, but she told him they had to meet up later for her to bring him to the body. Now, she didn't really give a reason, so they parted ways, and two hours later, Dee Dee came and picked Greg up again. Dee Dee drove them out to a house that she had bought with Abraham's money 
She put it in her boyfriend's name, and her lawyer was using it as an office. And Dee Dee, if you remember, was leasing the house next door as her office. About 30 yards away from this house was a concrete slab. Dee Dee told Greg that Abraham was buried six feet under the slab. She said Abraham was killed while he was in her office and had to be dragged out. Now, Abraham was 6'5", 195 pounds. I don't think anyone imagined anyone carrying him out. But Dee Dee showed Greg a white truck with a trailer, like an enclosed trailer, parked near the slab. She had borrowed this from her parents, who she obviously did not tell. She was using it to move a body. She told Greg to use a metal tub she had in the trailer to put the body in. And then she gave him gallons of bleach and gloves and what he would need to clean up. So she handed him the keys to the truck and left. And I guess she expected by the time she got back, Abraham would be off her property and she would be in the clear. Of course, Greg, working with the police, went to the police. He gave them the gun and told them where they could find Abraham's body. To help Greg cover things up a bit on his part, the police told him to call Dee Dee and tell her the police were surrounding the area where the body was and to kind of accuse her of having set him up playing like he wasn't the informant, maybe she was. After this phone call, he was done with his part in the investigation. This is when you would expect Dee Dee to be arrested. But the truth is she still hasn't said she killed Abraham, just that she knew where his body was. She always spoke with this passive voice, saying things like, Abraham was killed in my office. Abraham was dragged out of my office. She never said, I killed, I dragged, I anything. So the police still wanted more, and they were pretty sure they would get it. Later that same evening that Dee Dee showed Greg where the body was, so again, January 25th, police interviewed Dee Dee again. Again, she told a bunch of stories about what might have happened. One of the stories, I kid you not, alluded to her covering up for her son, saying her son killed Abraham because Abraham was attacking her. Her son was a teenager at the time, and I'm not talking like 18, 19, more like 14. She attempted to frame her own kid. She also told them that story about the drug dealer, Ronald. She said Abraham came to her office to get $200,000 in cash to give to the drug dealers that were with him. There were more than one. While in her office, one of the guys reached into her gun safe, which was wide open, grabbed her thirty-eight, and shot Abraham with it. 
And they would later trace the purchase of the 38 once they had it from Greg. They were able to trace it, and the purchase led them to Dee Dee. So it was her gun. But even as she's changing her stories, she never got close to admitting she had anything to do with this, except to say she did buy the lime that was poured over Abraham's body after he was buried. Lime, both quicklime and hydrated lime, are considered methods to speed up decomposition, though the science on this is not solid. A 2012 experiment in Belgium actually showed the lime slowed down decay over the course of six months using pigs as their experiment. And there's literature far earlier than that that also indicates that the lime may have a different effect than murderers seem to think. But I don't expect Yidi to be up on the latest in forensic research. At the end of this interview, Didi said something a little curious. She asked if she could keep all of her things if she told them who really killed Abraham. And by things, naturally, she meant all the stuff she bought with Abraham's money. For those of you who are into the psychology of the killer, this question likely interests you. She's under investigation for murder, and she wants to know if she can keep her car. Her concern was still with her belongings and her material things. She's also bargaining a bit here if she tells them what really happened. Could she keep her things? Meaning she does not think at this point she is going to jail. So the next day, the police searched the entire property. Blood was found on the carpet between a chair and a desk in her office, which is consistent with what she had told Greg. She said Abraham was sitting in the chair when he was shot. There was more blood on the carpet in front of a door that opened from the office into the kitchen area. So that's in the property that Dee Dee leased. In the property that her lawyer used, the one where the body was in the backyard, he was questioned. Obviously, they want to talk to Stitzel, the attorney, who has a body in his backyard. And he was questioned with his own attorney present because lawyers know to lawyer up. He told police that he saw Abraham in April or May 2009 in the office at the house. He did claim that that October 6th phone call was legit. Dee Dee was even there for it, but they already knew it wasn't. They then interviewed Dee Dee's boyfriend, Char, the same day to figure out what he knew. He technically owned the house. And as I started this case, I was like, why isn't this guy in jail? But the investigation showed that he actually didn't know anything, not just the murder. He also didn't know where the money was coming from. He took a polygraph and he did pass it, which is worth whatever you think a polygraph is worth. That's up to you to decide. He did receive these cars and this cash 
from Didi, which was coming from Abraham. So how did he not know? And it's because he was being told by Didi that she had come into a lot of money by being a whistleblower for the IRS. She was exposing tax evaders. This makes little sense to me, but Didi's own parents backed up that this was a story she was selling around. So maybe I'm the ignorant one here who didn't know that whistleblowing for the IRS could be so lucrative as to buy you a Corvette, but apparently that is what Didi told Shar. He did not know he was using Abraham's money this whole time. On January 27th, they talked to Judy again. She confirmed that Abraham was the one who asked her to be the power of attorney, not Didi. And she also told police that Didi had been telling Abraham about how much money he was going to lose in his separation from Centoria and his child support proceedings, and that she tried to tell him they actually weren't as serious as Didi was making them out to be. And if you remember that Abraham can't read the court paperwork, he can't research how much money he would actually have to pay, he did rely on Didi. She also said that Didi had contacted her at some point to close out a few of Abraham's remaining accounts. Didi said to give the money to her and she would pass it on to Abraham wherever he was. And this was less than about $2,000. The cashier's checks were issued for the balance and handed to Didi. And that was the end of Judy's involvement because that was the end of money Abraham had any control over. In the first part, I mentioned Didi's relationship with her ex-husband as being amicable. And this is where that comes back up. Investigators sat down with James Moore to ask him some questions, and he had a lot of incriminating things to say. Not self-incriminating, Didi incriminating. At some point, Didi had asked him what type of equipment would he recommend she use if she wanted to clear her land on Highway 60, and that means the property where Abraham was buried. James owned an excavation business, so it made sense to ask him. He said to get a tractor, use attachments, clear the land. But instead, she purchased a backhoe on April 3rd, and she even sent James to go get it. Sometime in the first half of April, she called James again. He had her backhoe out at his business or yard or wherever, and she said she wanted to dispose of some yard waste and chunks of concrete. And she needed him to bring the backhoe over and dig a big hole for her to dump this trash in. First, she wanted it to be dug behind the house she was using as an office and not that far from the back door. James told her that was too close to the house. So they found a better spot, and it was the one that was 30 yards behind the other house. So James dug the hole and went home. 
A couple of hours later, Dee Dee called him and asked if he would come back and fill the hole back up. She had dumped the stuff she wanted to bury. So when he got out there, James did what she asked. He saw what he thought were chunks of concrete in the hole, like she said she was putting in there. He didn't see a body, obviously, but it was kind of dark at this point, and he was probably eager to get this favor over with. So he filled in the hole and he left. Investigators then talked to Dee Dee's son, and he said that his mother told him that she, Abraham, Abraham's cousin, and a drug dealer were all together. Abraham attacked Dee Dee by choking her, and the drug dealer shot Abraham to defend her. He told the police that he didn't see any of this. This was just what he had been told from his mother. And the story is actually similar to the story Dee Dee would tell police about the incident where she put her son as the shooter. So elements of the same story being recycled here. So what about the spot where Abraham was supposedly buried? It feels like we kind of blew past that, but that's because it took two days to excavate the concrete slab. These interviews we just talked about happened while they were digging. Abraham's remains were not recovered until January 28th because this concrete slab was covering the ground. The University of Southern Florida's anthropology department was called in to assist. They used ground-penetrating radar over the concrete slab to identify any abnormalities in the ground. We talked about this method in the Springfield 3 episode. Dee Dee said Abraham was six feet down, but they didn't know that for sure, and they wanted to make sure that they preserved any and all evidence. The slab was also like 30 feet by 30 feet, so it was a pretty big area. After breaking up the concrete with the excavator, they were able to dig down, preserving evidence as they went, and they found Abraham, as Dee Dee said, six feet under. This may be the only true thing she has said. There was about three to six inches of lime covering Abraham's body, which actually made identifying him easier. He had been buried for nearly 10 months, but the lime hardened and it preserved his fingerprints and his palm prints. Here's an odd detail. Every metal button and zipper on Abraham's clothing had been removed. And the thinking is that this was to avoid detection by a metal detector if the area was ever searched. But this clothing, even with the pieces cut out, actually looked familiar to the police. Earlier in the investigation, Dee Dee showed them a video of Abraham talking about running away. She presented this to them as proof that that's exactly what he did. The video was taken on April 7th, and these clothes that they found him buried in were the same clothes he was wearing in that video. And this substantiated the date of death that police were already leaning towards, having used Abraham's cell phone records. His phone usage 
drastically dropped after April 6th, 2009. He was supposed to meet his friend Judy at the Hard Rock Casino in Tampa, but he never showed up. Then around 2 a.m. on April 7th, she heard from him saying that a sex worker had injured him and he was going to the hospital. There were no further calls until April 8th when two calls were made and they pinged off a tower near where Dee Dee lived. It's believed he was killed at some point in the very early morning hours of April 7th, and this is the date most widely reported. But note that Dee Dee bought the backhoe five days before this. She bought it when he signed the power of attorney. The autopsy showed that Abraham had been shot in the chest twice by a 38, which is the same caliber gun that Dee Dee had turned over to Greg. On January 29th, 2010, police met with Dee Dee again to present all of this new evidence they had, more like confront her with all this new evidence, and to see what new lies she was going to cook up when faced with this evidence. This time, she admitted that she did ask James to dig the hole, and she admitted she buried Abraham's body in the hole. She did say that James did not know what was going on, which cleared him from suspicion, not that he was really under any. She also admitted that the 38 caliber that she gave Greg was owned by her, which they already knew. So here she is again, just admitting what was already proven. She kept with the stories about how Abraham died. Now, she threw the lawyer under the bus at some point in here, saying that there was an argument when they were all in her office and there were drug dealers there, and that Abraham tried to shoot Stitzel, the attorney. Stitzel? I keep saying his name differently. I don't know why. Anyway, Abraham's gun jammed, so Stitzel grabbed Dee Dee's gun from the safe, which, again, wide open for some reason, and shot Abraham in self-defense. One of the drug dealers told her to go ahead and get that hole dug, and then he would do the rest. And obviously, police didn't believe this story either. So on January 30th, police met with Dee Dee for the last time. She reported the lawyer drug dealer story. They told her that didn't happen. So then she said it must have been Greg or his cousin Mike. And they told her, well, you know, super sorry there, but Greg was wired and Mike was a police officer. So Dee Dee starts crying and she stops talking, finally. And at this point, she hires a lawyer. She had run out of stories. Dee Dee was first charged as an accessory after the fact, which she had pretty much confessed to in one of these many stories that she had helped dispose of Abraham's body. There was no evidence linking anyone else to his death, though, and Dee Dee was then charged on February 19th with first-degree murder. Abraham's funeral was held on February 6th at New Bethel AME Church. Many police officers attended, and the two lead investigators were given a standing ovation from Abraham's loved ones, who were really hoping 
they were going to see justice at Dee Dee's trial. Dee Dee, though, she was not worried. She told reporters she wasn't scared. There was no jury out there that would convict her. And this assertion was put to the test on November 28, 2012, when the prosecution opened their case. They opted not to seek the death penalty, largely because Abraham's mother was against it. The prosecution argued the predator theory. Dee Dee found a man who was vulnerable. He had some very valid frustrations with how many people wanted his money and his own inability to turn them away. He was afraid. He was afraid he was about to lose all this money he just got and go back to living in poverty. Dee Dee used his vulnerability and his fears to get her hands on his dwindling fortune. The prosecution laid out a clear timeline of the events police uncovered and theorized that Abraham found out about the money Dee Dee had been siphoning off of him. He confronted her and then she shot him twice. I, however, have a less generous theory of this crime and I'm going to share it right now. I think Dee Dee knew Abraham was getting wise to her. We already know Judy went to her and said Abraham was having concerns. Maybe she tried to smooth things over and it wasn't working. Maybe she didn't. She bought the backhoe on April 3rd. When Abraham gave Judy power of attorney at that same time, Dee Dee had a plan in motion. She was going to kill Abraham she didn't need him anymore, and he was a threat to her. She then purposely made that video on April 7th of Abraham talking about going away. Now, Abraham does not seem angry or confrontational towards Dee Dee in that video. He's kind of messing with the TV while he's talking. It's not like they were fighting and there was some big confrontation. I think she made that video as evidence that Abraham ran off and then killed him in cold blood. But the prosecution opted to let jurors have this room to decide maybe it wasn't premeditated like that. It wasn't necessarily self-defense or heat of the moment, but not planned out. Her defense was that there were other suspects. A lot of people owed Abraham money. That's motive for them to kill him. Dee Dee was just a friend helping him out with his finances. They accused the police of getting tunnel vision and only pursuing Dee Dee as a suspect, which is not borne out in the case file. They did look at other people. They looked at the ex-coworker who sued Abraham way in the beginning, claiming that Abraham stole the winning lotto ticket from him. They cleared that guy. They talked to several of the people Dee Dee claimed were involved, including her own son. They looked for this drug dealer named Ronald. They asked Dee Dee how to get in touch with him. They asked her help in finding him, which, even though she claimed to be getting phone calls from him, didn't seem to have contact information. The defense went on to say that Abraham asked Dee Dee to meet him at her office he had a business meeting and wanted Dee Dee to give him some of the cash 
he stored in her office safe. Dee Dee was not at the meeting. She did not see him being killed. So opening statements done, prosecution puts on their case. All of the people we've talked about already testified. Abraham's mother talked about the fake phone calls. Centoria talked about how divisive Dee Dee was and how she told her things like Abraham ran off with another woman. Her ex-husband testified about the purchase of the backhoe and digging the hole. Oh, and I, I just have to put this in here because it's so odd. One investigator testified that Dee Dee told him that she was attracted to him and she hoped they could have sex once the investigation wrapped up. I mean, really, nothing in this case should really surprise us at this point, but this one caught me off guard. Anyway, they had something else. They had CCTV footage of Dee Dee at a Walmart around the time of the murder. She bought $104 worth of gloves, duct tape, trash bags, and plastic sheeting. Some of these items were found near Abraham's body. I haven't seen a lot of detail about this video in the media reports, so I don't even know how they found it because she was smart enough to use cash. I don't know if maybe someone recognized her once her face was all over the news, and so they went and looked, but maybe she left a receipt lying around, and that's how they found it. At the end of the prosecution's case, they showed the jury one last video, and it was a video interrogation of Dee Dee claiming the drug dealer did it, and then claiming Abraham's cousin Cedric, the one who reported a missing, did it. And then the detective testified about how she also said her son did it. So the jury's getting to see firsthand Dee Dee changing her story and lying. While Dee Dee's defense did cross-examine witnesses, they didn't call any of their own. Dee Dee decided not to take the stand, though she seemed to be trying to testify anyway. Dee Dee's behavior during this trial, it was something. From as early as jury selection, she was reprimanded by the judge for smiling and nodding and otherwise trying to engage with the jurors. She would visibly react to testimony, nodding, tearing up, that sort of thing, clearly sending a message about what she thought about what was being said, which she's not allowed to do. She would also have emotional outbursts where the trial would have to stop Dee Dee had to talk to her lawyer, be reminded to be quiet, to calm down, and then the trial could start again. At one point, the judge cut off the microphone at the defense table so that her talking wouldn't be heard by the jury. It's likely she wanted to be able to give her counterpoints in this weird mime so that she wouldn't have to testify and be open to cross-examination. The defense's closing statement was that Dee Dee was being set up, the case was circumstantial, that the police had a lot of evidence to pieces of the crime, but they didn't have anything that directly linked Dee Dee to the actual shooting. 
So it was her office, her gun, her yard, her cover-up, her lies to the police, and her gain. But no one put the gun in her hand, either as a witness or forensically. That is what the defense is trying to sell as reasonable doubt. I think it's pretty much all they could do. I commend her attorneys with really doing their best with such a big case. The prosecution's closing statement was a little bit more eloquent than just telling them, you guys know she totally did this, but that's more or less what they said. On December 10th, 2012, a jury of eight men and four women deliberated for three hours before they found Dee Dee guilty of first-degree murder. It didn't take three hours because they were between guilt or innocence. They were between first and second-degree murder. The first vote was nine for first-degree murder and three for second-degree. If they believed that there was some struggle with the gun, it would have to be second-degree murder. But in the end, they landed on first. Now, first of all, they did agree with me that the video being shot showed possible premeditation. I mean, what are the odds that they got into a fight that ended in his death just after she so happened to film a reasonable explanation for his disappearance? But for the jury, it was mainly the shot pattern. Both shots were in his chest and not really terribly far apart. They felt that if there was a struggle, if there was more movement happening, a more dynamic crime scene, the two shots would have been further apart. They would have been in different places. Instead, she had time to aim at center mass and fire twice without Abraham having made any big movements. Dee Dee was sentenced on December 10th, 2012 to life without parole for the murder and 25 years for the charge of using a gun in the commission of a felony. During sentencing, the judge told Didi that she was probably the most manipulative person that this court has ever seen. In 2017, it was announced in the media that Didi was seeking a new trial, claiming she had wanted to testify and her attorney wouldn't allow her. She also claimed Abraham's friend Greg intimidated a juror and her attorney didn't pursue that hard enough. I haven't seen any updates on this, so I haven't seen the appeals document where she lays out her justifications for these. But my layperson's opinion is on the first point. She was so out of control during the trial, her lawyer would have been a fool to recommend that she take the stand. Go on YouTube. After you're done listening to this, go to YouTube. Look up the Crime Watch Daily episodes on this case. You know how they always release them in like three parts. Halfway through the third part of the episode is an interview with Dee Dee from Behind Bars. Watch that interview and just picture in your head putting her on the stand to defend herself and what the jury would think of her. So even within this one interview, she told two stories. 
First, she told the reporter that she didn't know who killed Abraham. And then later on, she said Ronald killed Abraham. No attorney would have put someone who can't tell the same story twice within one interview on the stand. But her attorney can't actually bar her from taking the stand if she wants to, even if he thinks it's a ridiculous idea. Every defendant, even ones who are going to get up there and lie their butts off, have the right to go do that. If the judge asked her directly on the record if she wanted to testify and she said she did not, she really doesn't have a leg to stand on in this one. I haven't seen any report that she said she wanted to testify, except now that she's appealing on it. If she said, I want to testify to the judge, he would have put her on the stand, even if her attorney didn't want her to. This really amounts to an ineffective assistance of counsel claim, and it's been pretty well established in other cases that not putting your client on the stand is considered a reasonable thing for an attorney to do, and it's defense strategy, not ineffective assistance. So the second issue, the one about Greg communicating with a juror, is actually true. Two jurors told the judge that Greg had intimidated them in the parking lot after court one day. And then another juror said she felt uncomfortable with Abraham's family, though there weren't specifics on why. So I'm not sure what Greg and the family did or didn't do that made these jurors uncomfortable. Here's the thing with her claim, though, as far as an appeal goes. Greg talked to the jurors, and the jurors went to the judge immediately. The judge went through proper protocol of interviewing the jurors, asking them if they still felt they could remain unbiased in the case, made sure they weren't influenced one way or the other, and they all said they felt that they could still be fair. They just wanted to feel safe going to and from their cars. So they were all given basically guards to walk them to and from their cars at the courthouse. Dee Dee thinks her attorney should have pressed the matter with the judge, which I think she may have thought maybe she could have gotten a mistrial out of it. I don't think this is very strong grounds for an appeal. And so far, it doesn't seem to have gone anywhere. She is currently imprisoned at the Lowell Correctional Institution. I mentioned that Crime Watch Daily episode. This is where she was when she gave that interview. I know this episode is on the longer side, and I'm actually getting really tired of talking, but I have to tell you about this interview. She had all sorts of new stories. She claimed that she was set up. She was framed. This was a frame job. An unspecified they framed her so that they could get a hold of both Abraham's money and her money. Again, here's this idea that she had money without Abraham, which we know is a joke. At this point, she's saying she did not help cover it up, that Abraham being found on her property was part of the frame job. She didn't even know he was dead until the police started investigating. And as for that hole that she had dug, 
She said she and Abraham dug it to bury money to keep it safe while he left town. The concrete poured on top was meant to protect the money from rain. And she had no idea someone put Abraham's body in this hole. And this obviously doesn't make sense (laughs) for a number of reasons. The main one being that the time between when her ex-husband dug the hole and when he came back to fill it up was only a couple of hours. And he saw no one except Dee Dee in the area. When he got back to fill the hole, he said Dee Dee was sweating and she looked like she had just done some work, which he obviously thought meant burying yard waste and chunks of concrete. There was no money found in the hole, and this idea that Abraham went out there to bury money and somehow found himself dead in the hole is anyone's guess. Though she did claim she was searching for Abraham that whole time he was missing, the whole time she was sending text messages and letters claiming to be from Abraham, she was actually out there looking for him. Then she said something very random about being afraid that, again, they were going to kill her son, chop him up in little pieces, and put him on her doorstep. Again, unspecified they are behind all of this. The lead investigator on the case was also on Crime Watch Daily, and he said it was frustrating to interview Dee Dee because she would just keep lying. She couldn't keep her lies straight, and then when she got caught in them, she would change her story like it was no big deal. And this new narrative somehow became the truth. And you can see that happen in this interview. I really wish it was longer because it was really interesting to watch how frustrated she looked and she teared up when she was talking about how she just doesn't know who killed Abraham. And then later on, when they say, do you know who killed Abraham again? She just nods and she's like, Ronald did. Like so confident. You can see why people believe her. No one else would ever be charged in connection to Abraham's murder or the theft of his money. This convincing liar had largely conned everyone else. Her boyfriend, he has since left the area, moved on with his life, has a family. Good for him. And now that lawyer, he is still practicing in Florida. His files were seized. His office was searched. So I really think if he had any really strong connection to the fraud, something would have come from it. He doesn't have bar complaints or discipline from the bar. He has insisted that he was an unwitting pawn in whatever was happening. Maybe you could make an argument that he should have known, but that doesn't mean he did know. There was an attorney who worked very hard on behalf of Abraham's two sons, who were eight and one when his body was found. He worked to reclaim as much of the assets from Dee Dee that he could get. He managed to get the $1.1 million house back when a judge ruled there was no proof Dee Dee ever paid for it. He couldn't get everything back. 
but it was able to recover some, and it's all been put into trust funds for the boys to ensure their future. The money that got loaned out and given away and scattered to the wind, obviously that's, that's gone. Okay, there's one last twist to this case. In June 2017, the mother of Abraham's oldest son won $1 million in the lottery. What are the odds? Anyway, a ton of the police documents in this case are online, and they were a huge source for these episodes. The book Unlucky Number by Deborah Mathis, which Greg Smith helped write, was another source worth noting. And a huge thank you again to Haley Gray, who helped research both of these episodes. And with all of this information out there that you guys could all go consume without my help, without me telling you this story, I always have to ask myself, why do I want to tell this story? There can be a lot of reasons I tell a story. Sometimes it's just interesting. Sometimes, a lot of times, there's a social issue I want to talk about. But this case I want to talk about because I don't feel like Abraham Shakespeare's legacy that is out there in the more pop-up type news articles about him or the shorter explanations of what happened, I don't feel like that's accurate. He is too often portrayed as a hapless victim who won too much money, threw it away, and then got taken in by the first person who came along. I don't think that's what happened here. Didi was so manipulative that the judge had to stop her from trying to charm the jury. She allegedly got a cop with a clean record to take a bribe. Watch her in that Crime Watch Daily video and watch how confidently she says things. She knew what she was doing. She found a man who was frustrated and overwhelmed with his situation, and she took advantage. Abraham didn't die because he was too stupid to know better. He didn't die because he was being foolish. He didn't die because he was a hapless victim. He trusted the wrong person for around four months. I have trusted the wrong people way longer than that in my life. This was four months of trust. She didn't take him for a ride for years. This was a few months, and Abraham was catching on to her. She was about to lose everything. He was being manipulated. He started realizing it and she killed him. What happened here is Dee Dee's fault. Abraham needs to be remembered as the man whose first decision after winning the lotto was to set up a trust fund for his son and catch up on child support with his ex. He deserves to be remembered as the man who was giving away money when he was living with his mom and sweeping up hair clippings at a barber shop. He was kind-hearted he was generous, and the lottery had nothing to do with that. Dee Dee had nothing to do with that, and that's how he should be remembered. <laughs> 